From a wide range of embroidery classes to talks and special events, Royal School of Needlework's International Summer School offers so much. Immerse yourself in the world of the RSN with its world-renowned tuition and treat yourself to this Festival of Stitch in July and August 2024. The Royal School of Needlework is offering four ways to get involved this year. You can join the International Summer School on-site at Hampton Court Palace and at the Royal School of Needlework Durham in the UK, as well as Lexington, Kentucky in the United States of America. There are also online classes available live so students can join in anywhere from around the world. There's a wonderful variety of techniques to explore for those who are starting out on their hand embroidery journey all the way through to advanced stitches. So whether you want to follow a kit-based design, explore your own creativity using your own materials in a more contemporary way, or focus on developing your personal design skills, there will be a class that appeals to you. The Royal School of Needlework International Summer School classes will provide experienced stitchers with an opportunity to engage in a longer or more advanced project while allowing those newer to the world of hand embroidery to try a shorter course to build and develop their skills. The full list of classes and more information about the Royal School of Needlework International Summer School is available at royal-needlework.org.uk with special offers for booking multiple classes and an early bird booking price available until the 29th of February 2024. Whether you're planning on attending in person, online, or a combination of the two, this is a fantastic opportunity to improve your stitching skills from one of the best schools in the world. Woodlawn is a historical mansion based in Alexandra, Virginia, in the United States of America. It is the home to America's longest-running needlework competition, this year entering its 61st year. In this episode, I talk with Elizabeth Reese, the Associate Manager of Marketing at Woodlawn, where we talk about the history of this site, which not only features a historic mansion, but also features Pope Leahy House, which is a Frank Lloyd Wright building. We talk about its position in the historical context of America, and how it came to be the home for the oldest needlework competition in the country. We find out more about the competition. As I'm talking to you now in January 2024, you can't enter the 2024 competition, but the exhibition runs in March this year, so you can go along and have a visit. And it's fantastic competition by all accounts. Entries for the 2025 show will open in November next year, so if you want to have a go at that, uh, you can find out more about that in the interview as well. I really enjoy talking to Elizabeth. Um, she's new to the role, but she's a really dynamic force. And I think she, as a soon-to-be-published historian herself, knows her onions and is very conscientious about making sure that Woodlawn is telling the true history of the place. I think with a lot of uh, historical buildings, it's quite easy for them to portray a version of events which seems nice and bright and shiny, but oftentimes... There are dark elements to these, and I think Elizabeth is doing a great job of negotiating that conversation. Um, it's really interesting to find out about the Needlework Prize, and we have a good old chinwag all around the house about it, really. So hopefully you'll enjoy this one, something a little bit different. Um, and yeah, if you want to take part in the show, do visit their website, keep an eye on the Woodlawn socials, and you'll be able to enter it in November next year. Thanks for listening. I will be back next week with an interview with a new artist. So until then, enjoy the show. First of all, I was trying to work out exactly what your title is because you're like a public historian. Yeah, so my title at Woodlawn is Associate Manager of Marketing. Okay. But you are also I'm also a public, a public historian. historian. Yeah. Mm. And how did you come to be Associate Manager of Marketing at such a renowned establishment? So I, uh, previous, I've worked at historic sites my entire career, um, took a little bit of a break uh, for like, personal stress and just seeing, needed to take a break to work on other things and took a look around at places um, in the area, kept an eye on historic sites um, living in the DC area. I'm really lucky that there are an abundant sources of historic sites here. And um, Woodlawn was on my radar because of 
its connection to the early Republic, which is like the area of um, history that I tend to focus on. And um, the connections, the, the huge history that's there, because it's not just Woodlawn, which was uh, Nellie Custis, George Washington's step-granddaughter, uh, home. It's, there's also a Frank Lloyd Wright house on the property, the Pope Leahy house. Um, it was a site of uh, the Quake, Quakers owned, uh, operated the site after uh, Nellie and her husband Lawrence Lewis left. Uh, there's, it, it's truly, when I describe it to people, Woodlawn and Pope Leahy house is like the story of America compressed into like one historic site. It is all encompassing of the history of this of this country in, in every aspect. So that really intrigued me. Um, and my background is in public history and interpretation. So I'm used to giving tours, developing tours and researching tours and interacting with the public. So I know what kind of questions the public asks and like what they kind of look for and expect when they come to a historic site. And like, well, those skills really transfer into marketing and kind of helping Woodlawn be get on the map because we're like i mentioned we're like in a super rich area of historic sites so it's kind of easy for a place to kind of fall through the cracks when mm. it's like well i've got all these historic places to visit why should i visit yours so i think having someone who has a little bit of a background and knowing why visitors like interacting with visitors when they come to places helps and mm. uh i think that was kind of what pulled me is to this position and so far I've been loving it. I've only I've been here since October. So right. So far, and Woodlawn so then is like it's one of those slightly left field history places, right? You get your like your traditional this is where so and so and such and such was signed. You can tell by the way. I'm full disclosure here. I'm useless at history. <laughs> Part of my brain isn't fully convinced that anything happened before 1975 when I was alive. But <laughs> I believe that's the thing. But but Woodlawn's different, isn't it? It's like, would you say like history adjacent? Is that a way you could kind of say? It's, I mean, it's definitely, it's full history. However, I think when people come to this region, especially where we're located, we're in Alexandria, Virginia, we are right down the road from Mount Vernon, which is George Washington's house. So when people think of the area that we are, they think of George Washington and like right. they think of George Washington's home. We are connected to George Washington because we are right down the road. We are on uh, one of the original um, four farms of Mount Vernon. So the land that Woodlawn is on was part of the original uh, plantations of George Washington. Um, and then he gifted this land to his step-granddaughter. And uh, when she married his nephew, uh, in, uh, in Lawrence Lewis married Eleanor Park Custis Lewis. And uh, the home was then finished in 1805 when they moved in so it's like it's so because it's after the revolution it's in the, the the early american phase i think it kind of people people go to can they go to the other kind of bigger places so i think we kind of get a little overlooked do you get this thing with american history where it's a bit like you know like you get ad and bc right and we measure our time like before christ after christ does america <laughs> measure its history like pre-revolution and post-revolution I think it kind of, it measures it by like kind of like the major events. So the revolution, major event, and then historic sites kind of come a little bit of a lull. Civil War sites are really popular. So it, it goes by kind of the major movements that are happening. Um, so in between those stuff is obviously still happening um, mm. and historians are, are working and, and books are being published and people are, are, are studying in between those eras. But in terms of historic sites, I find that those that are attached to like the big players, the big names, the Washingtons, mm -hmm. the Lincolns, the Jeffersons, um, that's what people know. And so people are, are, are drawn to that. Right. So we've got, let's say half an hour. Can you tell me the tale of Woodlawn? Yes. <laughs> um, so Woodlawn is today, Woodlawn and Pope Leahy House both operate as sites of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Um, Woodlawn is the first site of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Um, and uh, it originally operated as a plantation for Eleanor Park Nellie, which was also what you went by, um, Eleanor Park Custis Lewis and her husband, Lawrence Lewis, when George Washington gifted the property to them after their marriage. Um, also on the site is uh, the Frank Lloyd Wright designed 
Pope Leahy House, which was moved to the grounds of Woodlawn in 1965. So the, oh, wow. the Frank Lloyd Wright House uh, is not original to the property, but it was moved uh, once a nearby highway, uh, I-66, was being expanded and it was imposing on its original location. So the Frank Lloyd Wright House was disassembled and moved to the property then um, and reassembled here. Uh, so it, that's also kind of part of the historic preservation of the site, mm. preserving homes and having these two like really different homes. You have one, Woodlawn is this federal style, large, traditional, when you kind of think of these state homes in the early in the 18th century, early 19th century. And the Pope Lake House is a Frank Lloyd Wright house, which is very, very different. Uh, it's Usonian. It's much more modern. Um, but those two houses in juxtaposition have an interesting conversation of like the style of American home and how that mm. has changed and evolved over time. Mm. Yeah, because it presumably Woodlawn is that kind of architecture, like legacy, you know, from the people that came to America and their tastes and that kind of influence. Whereas yeah. people like Frank Lloyd Wright were like setting new standards and new directions. Yeah. yeah, the federal style of architecture evolves from Georgian, which mm -hmm. is very English. So it's kind of how Americans took what the they knew uh, from like England and France and kind of made it American and then how that evolves really really evolves in the next couple centuries with something like Frank Lloyd Wright which is I don't think anything that people that were building homes in the early 19th century could have really envisioned. Hmm. Do the two buildings I mean this this is done but obviously they must feel quite different between the two of them how far apart are they like on the, uh, the state? It's a five it's they're about five minute walk they're not right. they're not right next to each other they are separate so like some people visit just one some Many people visit both. People have the option to tour one or the other. And uh, during the Needlework Show, when it's open, the Pope Leahy House is open for tours. So people can come visit the Needlework Show inside Woodlawn and then take a little walk uh, and uh, go visit Pope Leahy as well. Do a bit of time travel. I'd imagine it probably is quite both of them being like palate cleansing sorbets to the other. You know, if you get a bit regency yeah. out, then you can go and Frank Lloyd it and vice versa. Yeah. But yeah, we should talk about the Needlework Show because probably half of my listeners are just like, why are we talking about ancient-ish <laughs> American houses when in fact this is an embroidery podcast? So let's talk about, <laughs> is it America's longest running annual Needlework Show? Yes, we believe it is the longest running Needlework Show in the country. Uh, we are in our 61st year. We'll be opening on March 1st. Um, it is the, the largest judged Needlework Show. I guess mm. I should say there may, there may be other ones that are mm -hmm. perhaps longer, but we display hundreds of pieces um, entered by needleworkers from all over the country and internationally as well. Um, and we encourage people from all experience levels to submit their work. The show is judged and not juried. And um, I have learned that a juried show is selected by the show's they're, if they have a jury or a committee, they get to choose who, what pieces are entered. Um, typically, not all pieces are, are chosen, but okay. a judge show, all pieces that are submitted are entered and then judged in their respective oh. categories. That's so. interesting. So over here, we have like the Royal Academy and the Royal Academy summer show is quite a thing and people submit their work for that. And oftentimes, kind of annoyingly with needlework as well, a lot of the time things get rejected. So by that explanation, yeah. that's a juried show because yes. people are opening and closing the gates as they see fit. Whereas the phenomenally successful Mr. X Stitch Contemporary Needlework Prize last year was a judged show because anybody could enter and then we just picked our favorites. Yes. And... With Woodlawn, we our, our mission for the site itself and the programs that we do is um, to engage with the community. We want to preserve history and care for uh, nature, and at, it's a former site of enslavement at, at, at plantations. We're very uh, at, at Woodlawn, so we're very um, conscious of the work that we do here, the stories that we're telling, and making sure it is inclusive. Um, we're in the process of also rethinking our tours and our programs to include a more integrated history of the site and of this, telling the stories of everyone who 
lived and worked here with, we have new tours and exhibits launching in the spring. And with the extension of the needlework show, like I, I, I learned needlework from my grandmother. I do not consider myself an expert. I would be very intimidated in <laughs> uh, entering a show. And the fact that it's for all levels and abilities is opening the doors to more people to be inspired by this craft and hopefully participate and um, have more people learn about what a joy it is to needlework. We're talking in January 2024 now. The entries for this year's competition are kind of the entry windows closed, right? Yes. So the entry window to mail in submissions closed on January 15th. Uh, for people who are a little bit more local uh, to us in the mm-hmm. DC area, um, they get the entry window is going to be until the 28th because you, if you have the opportunity to come and physically drop off your pieces here at Woodlawn, but okay. for those who are a little bit farther away and need to mail them in, uh, the entry window uh, closed on November or excuse me, January 15th. So for people who are already maybe listening and thinking about 2025. Mm. Uh, and uh, we generally open up registration in the fall before the show. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the fall of 2024 will be here before we know it. And it um, I mean, I would offer to fly people's work over business. using the Mistrex Stitch private jet, <laughs> but A, that doesn't actually exist, and B, it doesn't <laughs> exist. But that's good to know. Is, is the show uh, particularly themed, the competition? We do have a theme, but people are not... Um, they don't need to stick to it. So last year's theme uh, was craft discomfort, joy in needlework. And this year's theme is needlework and in everyday life. It's kind of a suggestion and it's a way for us to sort of like theme um, exhibits and programs around that. Um, Mm. But it's, you don't, pieces don't, don't, don't need to be themed to the the whatever the current theme of the, the show is yeah, yeah yeah and if people are working on work now there's no reason why they should you know they shouldn't have to wait to find out what theme is if they want to enter the one for 2025 right. in that case right yeah all like you've got a piece that you're just really proud of or just one you want to submit mm. where we'd love to see it so right so then the judging um, is in february and are you able to say who the judges are is that an industrial secret they're, they so they usually change from year to year. It depends. We have a couple of people that we ask, but they're all people who have certification in judging and um, training, and they're expert needlework artists. There's usually about three of them, um, and they judge. We have uh, techniques and categories and divisions that they judge on. Mm. Um, they some of the techniques are beadwork, canvas work, counted thread, surface embroidery. Uh, fine hand sewing, needle made lace, quilting, and smocking. Um, mm-hmm. Because the show does define needlework. You have to edit this out. That's all right. Did you know that fine so, hand? Long... Go on. Okay. Oh, you go on. <laughs> <laughs> the show defines uh, needlework as hand stitched items with a needle and thread. See, I might be wrong here, but I think fine hand embroidery is when you do your embroidery, but you put your little finger up in the air because you're a bit fancier. Oh, yes. If anybody's <laughs> listening who will correct me on that, it's probably everybody on it. I entered a needlework competition once in 2011. I entered um, and it was on national television. There was a show Ooh. over here called Kirsty's Handmade Britain, where Kirsty Allsop, a much loved British celebrity, um she entered a series of competitions craft competitions and she would get trained on how to do things by experts so that she would learn the skills and that was part of the show but they also had random members of the public who took part in the show so I took part in the needlework competition along with a couple of other people and it was a kind of like a blind competition so we submitted our work and nobody knew who had submitted it so it wasn't like like Kirsty Allsop spoilers she won the competition but what i'm saying is she won it fair and square because her needle felted piece was good they judged it blind they picked the right kind of one i decided to do um a cross stitch that's my thing and i did this thing called whitby abbey and sunset so i did it on black fabric and it was a picture of whitby abbey and basically i just stitched this sunset 
So the Abbey was like negative space on the black fabric. And I was pretty proud of it. And I finished it at two o'clock in the morning of the show and sellotaped it into a frame while I was staying at a travel lodge hotel in the vicinity of the show. Went and hung it up and stuff. But what nobody ever really told me was that part of the secret to success was having a variety of stitches. So even though my pattern looked amazing, I still completely tanked because it was just cross-stitch and hastily done (laughs) cross-stitch and all of that sort of thing at the time. But what kind of happened was because people had like seen me on the show and kind of gone along my journey a little bit, what they also then thought that, and it sort of happened unfortunately quite a lot with Kirsty shows, was it's like she was taught by experts. And so in a way when she won, everyone was like, well, of course she won because she was taught by experts, which wasn't the case, you know, it was judged fair and square. But as a consequence, there was a sense of injustice on my behalf and people thought that I'd kind of like been robbed and that I sort of like, I sort of won the hearts of a nation for like 10 minutes or something. (laughs) It's very amusing, that's... but <laughs> that's so funny. But yeah, needlework competitions but... are tough. Yeah, I mean, like, I, it seems intimidating because, like, not only are there techniques, um, but there's categories within the techniques. There are there's an original design, an adaptation of a design, or a commercial design. So if you're creating a piece, if you're adapting a piece, maybe from like a painting or a photograph, then you're using mm. that as a model. Or if you're, it's a commercial piece and you're using a, a pattern for a kit. Um, and then within the divisions, there is an adult, so anyone 18 or older, a senior is 70 years or older, and junior, um, 17 years or younger. Oh, and cool. then within juniors, they're divided into addition, uh, divisions within junior of 9 and under, 10 to 13, and 14 to 17. Um, oh, cool. So, and even encouraging really young stitchers so like within all that all those categories there are subdivisions and and in addition to even those there are special awards that are given as well and the majority of these are um, done on the judges choose based on expertise and technical skill Uh, so there's there's a best in show there's outstanding children's workshop entry outstanding work by a junior Outstanding original design, outstanding adapted design, outstanding miniature, outstanding senior entry, and uh, the judge's choice award, which each judge chooses. We also have two um, awards that are a little bit different, two special awards. One is the director's award, which is chosen by our executive director, Sean Halifax. Uh, So he's the executive director of Woodlawn and Pope Leahy, and he tends to look at the messages of the piece mm. um not maybe not necessarily on like the technical skill but like thematically how may, maybe how they relate to the message of woodlawn how the story of the piece and the person who who stitched it how that resonated and um there's also a Pe- people's choice award so oh, nice. every yeah. visitor who comes and visits um and there are thousands of these uh, uh ballots that we get from each person who comes to the show they get to pick a favorite and then that is a also an award. So a way of every skill level, every sort of like participation kind of can be involved and um, have the opportunity to earn a ribbon, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. Do you know how many entries you got last year? It was a couple hundred. I want to say around maybe around four hundred the range of techniques and stuff means that like this is an exhibition of all shapes and sizes oh for sure for sure there are some that are like amazing pieces of thread painting that look like photographs Mm. when you get close you can really see the stitch work uh there was one last year that was it won best in show and outstanding original design and it was a couch it was called antique camelback couch with fox hunt scene um it took the artist over 20 years to complete and the Whoa. only part of it that was not needleworked were like the wooden legs like the frame of the of the couch it, it it's unbelievable which is the, just the devotion to working on a single piece for that long and it just this this size of it the fact that it is like a piece of furniture and not like the kind of a traditional like framed piece it's just really unbelievable 
I think, I mean, it sounds epic. I need to go and look that one up. Would it be on is yes. there Instagram? You can find a picture of it somewhere. Sometime. We do have, we, we do have some, I'm, I'm not sure if that one is on our Instagram, but I could, I can, I can maybe show, do a little showcase yeah. of I mean, uh, some I, past work. A lot of needleworkers, quite frankly, would attest to the fact that it's one, like many people have got works in progress that would be 20 years old. Doing Spending 20 years on a piece of yeah. work is not unfamiliar, but finishing the piece of work after 20 years, that is indeed worth a prize in and of itself, let alone, you know, exhibiting yes. it. That's amazing. Yes. That's, uh, yeah. um, we, um, online, we do have um, uh, all of our past virtual programs mm -hmm. and exhibitions for past needlework shows. That is online. We also do have some uh, virtual programming for this year as well. I saw um, that. You've got Ruth, Ruth Tabernacki. Yes. yes, we do. Yes, we do. So she is doing a virtual program on March 23rd at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, it is open to the public. And she is discussing uh, What Linens Know, which is an exhibit that we are also having at the Woodlawn Needlework Show this year. Um, which is exploring some unconventional concepts of uh, artistic medium and including the uh, using of reused or dried tea bags to make <laughs> kind of everyday items, which is just, this is just so amazing. Like I, it's the coolest thing to incorporate needlework into stuff, which encapsulates this year's theme. Yeah, yeah. no, I really like that. And the life. thing is, is at the back of my brain, I've been trying to think there's a few artists who sprung to mind when you talk about the domestic, like I can think of a few artists who've done great things in terms of just elevating, you know, there's a there's a lady called Jennifer Bowe. And, and back in the day, she did things that were almost like, it was a, a mashup between religious iconography and almost like retro cookbooks or something you know just like bringing these things together and making high priestesses out of like domestic situations That's so and stuff. Cool. there's quite a few people and there's somebody else and it's annoying me because her name's escaping me but she is she's nearly finished doing a, a tumbler filled with whiskey but the and it's just embroidered but her ability to do transparent glass and reflection and all of those sorts of things is unparalleled and it's driving me mad that i can't think of her name but it's like, I just kind of want to go, yeah, just drive down to CC and put that in. You're guaranteed to get somewhere. I'm not sure what the message <laughs> is. It might be that, you know, it's a hard not life or something. But that's, that's amazing. I'm so astounded by the the art that that the these artists create. Like, it's just things I just can't even like, comprehend made with a needle and thread. It's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, I was, so we had the Mr. X Stitch Contemporary Needlework Prize last year, and that was an epic thing to kind of um, judge. And then I was also one of the judges for the Hand and Lock Embroidery Prize this year as well. And equally so, I think what last year, what was um, great is you you see all this work. And after, to a certain point, particularly with the Hand and Lock Prize, because it's almost like there isn't a barrier to entry there, but what you can do is you can go, all of this work is like really well stitched in the first place. So then for me, it was really like, a bit like you were saying with your director's choice, it's like going, which are the pieces that really knock my socks off? You know, which are the ones that really wow me? Because you can, it's, it, it's it, like it disenfranchises the effort that people put in. But like in the Hand and Lock Prize in particular, everything was excellent. All of the work was finished, you know, particularly well. So then you're like, what is the thing that's making the difference? And it's that thing that like really punches you in the stomach because somebody right. did a thing and it was just, you know, there was one dress and every single symbol on the dress related to a tragedy. And it was just like when you get the storyline to go along with it, do you know what I mean? Suddenly it's like a real gut punch and you're like, that's what makes the difference. That's the almost the brutality of the art or the beauty of the art, you know, however it yeah. goes. And uh, we do ask for a statement when people submit pieces so we can learn a little bit more about the piece and, and what inspired uh, the artist to make the piece. And a lot of the times we hear about how these pieces helped people work through grief or, or trauma or, or celebrations. Like there is, I think there's so much to be said about like the, the expression of, of human existence that is then recorded through needlework and mm. um last year was the 60th anniversary of the show and mm. there was a, like a participation board and so people uh we asked people to like leave their memories and their thoughts of um 
their past experiences with the show, um, kind of suggestions, things like that. And it, we got so many messages. Um, I was I was reading through some of them this morning, and like it's just seeing how needlework has impacted people's lives, the connections that it has made with members of their family. So many were like, I wish my grandmother could have been here to see this. I wish my mother could have been here to see this. Needlework helped me through um, get through the pandemic. Um, like that, that was a very common thing that we have heard mm. in the past couple of years and of people picking it back up again. Someone said like, this is, I visiting this needlework show inspired me to cross stitch again. I haven't picked up a needle and thread in, in 20 years. And <laughs> so just being around art and being inspired by art, I think is a huge impact on like the human soul and, um, seeing that happen in real time at the needlework show for people who enter and people who just visit is just an amazing thing that happens. I always like as well, you get the the contrast, particularly, you know, when you're talking about things like home and domesticity and the things that we take for granted, I, I'm always fascinated when people then choose to immortalize those things because it means they have value. You know, needlework can't be done in an instant. So if you're going to spend a lot of time making right. a thing, that thing has some value. And what you find a lot, particularly with needlework, I'd say over and above some other medium, is that when people do immortalize their favorite Kenwood mixer, for sake of example, you know, it makes you think about that mixer. It makes you think about it more because we understand that needlework takes the time that it does. And it's probably one of the more accessible art forms, which is a whole another subject of why, you know, it isn't taken seriously as an art. But because people see how it can be done, if someone is then, you know, yeah, even just painting a portrait of like their nan or something, you know, or just a random person on the street, you know, there's got to be value there. It's a really good one for like stopping and smelling the roses, I guess. Right. Totally. Uh, one of the comments that I was, I was reading over was someone saying how like struck they were to be reminded that this is a form of storytelling. And I was like, that's, that's this, having those realizations and something in visiting a show, uh, visiting a needlework show and seeing people's work. It's just something that really speaks emotionally to me and is really exciting to see play out. What can you tell me about the history of the needlework show? I can tell you a lot about the history of the needlework show. Uh, so the needlework show, <laughs> the needlework show uh, started 61 years ago. It was established by uh, two the founders, uh, Adelaide Bolte and Emmy Pinky Matheson, are the names of the two founders. Um, they were very interested in needlework. They were interested in historic preservation. Um, and so Woodlawn um, was a combination of these two things. Nellie Custis, Lewis herself was a needleworker. Uh, we have a lot of her, her pieces in our collection. Uh, she learned needlework from her grandmother, who was Martha Washington. Um, we also have some pieces of hers in our collection as well. Um, so they formed uh, Nellie's Needlers, which is a volunteer group uh, organization that helps to support Woodlawn and the Needlework Show. Uh, so the Nellie's Needlers are going to be celebrating their 50 years of anniversary uh, in 2025. And uh, they would love to mark this significant anniversary by having submissions from all 50 states in the United States and 50 countries from around the world uh, in, in the show next year. So in 2025, that's the, the big goal for, for next year's show. Um, and um, yeah, the show is the largest fundraiser for Woodlawn. And I think it's endured because it's just created a long lasting community of people who share common interest. It honors the site's mission with engaging our community and contributing to um, community repair. As I mentioned about the notes I was reading from visitors last year about how this is a generational thing for a lot of people. And I think the show is a like physical example of that. Yeah, I think that's the interesting thing, isn't it? The show's been going for so long that, you know, there will be people who submitted work to earlier shows whose grandchildren are potentially getting involved in it now. And I mean, that's yeah. a pretty amazing amazing thing to have in terms of a tradition yeah i think like in in a world where so much is so fast needlework like you mentioned takes time and mm. like it's it's something that if you want to see it to like 
fruition, it might take decades to finish a piece. Um, and so having this time of like to slow down and like remembrance and think about the, the people who may have taught you how to sew or it's a, it's a kind of, a, of the threads that bind not to, not to be corny, but I think <laughs> it's woven into the history in of the place. Exactly. Those, the problem with needlework is there's so many analogies that you can't help but sound a bit cheesy when you say them, but here's a question. Exactly. How much has, the Needlework show influenced the story of Woodlawn. And the reason I mention that is that I'm aware that you've also got the Arcadia Farm and you also do the um, writing courses uh, the, what's it, in a loop. There you go. Yes. And both of those things are quite slow and considered and reflective and harken back to a more agro-domestic way of being. And I wonder whether those things, you know, whether there's a recognition that Woodlawn's been around for a long time and it did have, you know, it's got a history of working with the land in various forms. And I wonder whether these things are part of that, you know. I wonder if you can speak to that. I have honestly never thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is a good question. Um, all the programs and that we have here are just are hoping to honor the mission and, and tell the full story of the site that is the ultimate goal is to have things that are inclusive i think specifically with the needlework show um it is bringing to light a lot of history of of women and specific also enslaved women um of of woodlawn there was a piece um that was an original cross-stitch design by one of the members of uh, Nellie's Needlers. It's called Know Their Names. And it was the names of the enslaved women who lived and work at Woodlawn. Um, uh, and we have that on display like mm -hmm. in, in the house um, now as well. And I think kind of what I appreciate about the Needlework Show is how it helps tie in the stories of the history of Woodlawn um, and to, to tell that tell that fuller story bring to light the work of of historically women that has kind of gone unnoticed like hmm. needlework i think is a is an example of that where it's was something that had to be done clothes had to be mended things like you needed these items and women were the ones doing it and in american um planter society here in virginia in the in the 18th, early 19th century, it would a lot of times be enslaved women who were mm. doing this work. And it's historically not recognized and not really seen. So I think opportunities for the show to kind of bring that to light is also helpful in contextualizing the history of the house as well. Was it that the short history of America, you know, I did history A level and thank, I'd like to shout out to my history teacher because I was going to apply to do a history degree. And in the second year of my A-level, he took me into his office one day and went, Jamie, are you sure you should do a history degree? And I sort of went, no, probably not. And I didn't do a history degree. And that was probably the most profound conversation I ever had in my life. But um, <laughs> I'm very well aware that we get told we get told what history is, don't we? we? Certain books are written at certain times and before you know it, they're accepted as gospel. So I guess it's quite, A, it's quite important to tell the real story of the United States of America, right? Not the marketed version of it. But then I wonder yes. how difficult that is in the kind of context of you've got a building with such a strong history. I'm guessing it's a very delicate balance to reshape, reframe the history of that building. Yeah, I think um, what the benefits of physically visiting a site over re reading a book, I think reading, if, if the, a reading is all that you have to learn about what happened, um, that is incredibly important. But if you have the opportunity to visit a historic space and be in the space, interact with the space, um, and our, our guides and, um, who work here are, um, who, the term is in, in, interpreters. So you're mm -hmm. interpreting this space to contextualize it for the visitors. It allows for conversation. It allows for like thinking. It allows to have these discussions in the space where it happened. I think that's one of my favorite ways to interact with history with people. It's one of my favorite ways myself to like learn about history is being there physically is gives a much um you have emotional connection with the space and then mm. if you add 
an element of needlework where they, oh, I, I do needlework. They did needlework. Mm. Like there's a, there's a, something that is shared in common. That's an even deeper connection. So I, I would hope that people come to visit the show and people will then stay and love to learn about Woodlawn and would come back and visit on tours. I think that would be just the ultimate success story of like being inspired by the work that is being done here. Yeah, yeah. And it feels like there's a real honouring of the traditions. I think that's what I was getting at with the thing about, you know, the fact that you're also doing growing food on the land and you're also encouraging Mm. people to write stories. These are very old traditions. And sometimes you feel like the modern world has gone, no, you don't need to grow your own food. We can get it out of a machine. We can grow it in a lab or whatever. But I think we're all slowly starting to realise that things like taking the time to make things and taking the time to tell stories and taking the time to grow your own food. These are like intrinsic and ever more important crafts. And I think it's right. really interesting that those are the ones that are coming out of that site. You know, it feels like you're, you're holding on to the right bits and, and kind of just, you know, yeah, just keeping a hold of them as the world wavers around you. Yeah, I think it's, well, I think it's important to, re- to reflect on, on history and learn from history. There's the saying of like those that do not learn it are doomed to repeat it. And I think, having the opportunity to learn more by being at a site is just so powerful. Mm. Yeah, no, it's good. Uh, so the show, the exhibition, the New to Work exhibition runs from when until when? I so the show runs from, <laughs> the show runs from March 1st through March 31st. It is open every day except for Tuesdays. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I mentioned before, Pope Leahy House is also going to be open for tours during this time, although the Needlework Show is not on display at Pope Leahy. Um, people who are visiting the site for the Needlework Show will have the opportunity to tour, so you can see some needlework in a Frank Lloyd Wright house uh, at the same time. Um, we also have during this is the uh, Nellie's Cafe, which is run by ne- the Nellie's Needlers. It is the only time that a restaurant is going to be on site for guests during the year, and it is a very popular thing that happens during the Needlework Show. And um, there is more information on our website at woodlawnpopelahey.org if people are interested. And uh, we, if you have any more questions, you can email us and we will get right back to you. After the show, you guys have also got quite a lot of other... So you've got your um, virtual talks, but then you do ongoing exhibitions and you have workshops as well, don't you, for the rest of the yes. year? Yes. Yeah, we have, a, we have a couple uh, in-person programs uh, during the show as well. So uh, throughout the month of March, um, uh, we will have some in-person programs. Uh, one is with uh, Young Min Lee. She had a virtual program last year, which you can find on our website and our, our YouTube channel. It, it was so popular that we asked her to come in person. And uh, she teaches how to construct a lotus leaf-shaped sangbo. Um, uh, that you can use in daily life, which is uh, using uh, Korean techniques, right. uh, needlework techniques to create this. Um, we also do special tours of the show, which are hosted by a member of Nellie's Needlers and Woodlawn staff. So it is truly combining the um, the needlework and the history of the site together into like one experience for people. Mm. And uh, Nellie's Needlers also host. Uh, beginner needlework uh, workshops. So there are three throughout the month of March. Um, one is on counted cross stitch, one is on canvas work, and one is surface embroidery. And uh, they host these sessions, they host uh, classes throughout the year, but these are the three that they'll be hosting uh, during the needlework show to encourage uh, beginners of all ages to learn how to needlework and be, be inspired. Amazing. I might be a bit biased, but I do think that the county's cross stitch is the sort of thing that can change a person's life. So I would encourage people to do that. And once they've done that, don't forget there's an excellent magazine called X Stitch that people can yeah. <laughs> they want as well. Um, that sounds good. Right now, so now I'm going to ask you four questions that are very important. And now I'm asking Elizabeth Reese, soon to be published historian, <laughs> uh, your your choices that you make are not on behalf of the Ward Lawn historical. <laughs> property okay so <laughs> if you don't mind can you tell me uh what your favorite band is my favorite band is the clash oh ah, pretty badass why is that i 
I discovered them when I was 13 and uh, Joe Strummer spoke to my 13 year old soul growing up in the suburbs of Washington DC so (laughs) I think I'm hang on am I I one two I'm two degrees of separation from him because I know someone who's friends with his daughter Jazz Domino Holly who was a bit crafty for a while there so you're like three three separation from him now there that's that's so cool I got to our local our local record store um is a big like clash guy the owner and he has a bunch of signed stuff and he let me hold it so I was like it's <laughs> pretty cool. Do you have a favorite song? <laughs> um my favorite song is Clamp Down. Mhm. But there's really no bad clash song. Love it, love it. Okay, uh favorite book? My favorite book is Burr by Gore Vidal. It is a historical fiction book about Aaron Burr, and it is just fantastic. I reread it all the time. Okay. Aaron Burr, is he another president? He was not. Well, he was vice president. Right. Um, he's pretty much, he's mostly well known for killing Alexander Hamilton in a duel. So. See, now I've, yeah. <laughs> this is embarrassing as well. I've only watched the first half of Hamilton, the movie. Probably I'm going to have to go and see it. The, like, for oh, I'm real, sorry to have the spoiled the ending no, no, no. for you. No, but that was nice, like, in my head. I'm just like Aaron Burr, Aaron Burr, Aaron Burr. I know him. Not to be confused with Bill Burr. Very different kind of setup with that yeah. guy there. That's good. Okay. Um, favorite. <laughs> I think I know what the answer to this next question might be, but uh, favorite film? My favorite film is Star Wars. And if I had to pick one, it would be the original. The original of Star Wars. Let's talk a little bit about Star Wars. <laughs> it means a lot to you, right? Word on the street it is Star Wars tattoo. <laughs> I do. I love Star Wars. <laughs> Why do you love it so? What is it that really gets you about it? Uh, it is so different from my life. It is. It is true, like... My, my my world is steeped in American history. And I think this is probably one of like the farthest things like visually like that you could go from it. And it is, I, I just, I like the, the escapism of it. And even though that it's still like, there's still elements that it's like, oh, uh, there's history and there's politics and there's things like that. But I just, I love it. I was trying to work out. I don't know enough about history or indeed Star Wars to see whether there are any parallels. But it would be quite <laughs> funny. Maybe your, maybe the Nelly's Cafe is something like the Moss Eisley Space Bar or something. No. <laughs> <laughs> you can see that's my knowledge has just ended there, really. Okay, that's good. Um, and then finally, is there an interesting fact about Elizabeth Reese that not many people know? I feel like most people know a lot of things about me. Um I don't know. That was the one that I had the most trouble thinking of when I was looking. Uh, I don't know. You see, you say that, and, and we get that. I've, I've, I ask this question of a lot of people in a lot of circumstances, and they always go, oh, there isn't very anything very interesting. And then they'll go, I mean, I studied clown school in Paris for Wait, four I years. do have one. I have there one. There you go. There you go. Go on. I trained for the Olympics for a year. There you go. God, it takes a bit of effort to get these out of people. Please and I decided... Expand. I decided, no, I, I, I was a swimmer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm from near the area where Michael Phelps was from. So like growing up swimming is like, well, you got to do it. Mm-hmm. The hometown boy is the greatest Olympian ever. So mm-hmm. you got to swim. And um, I was good at it, but I was like, I, I can't devote my life to this. I, I want to have friends and I liked riding horses and playing with my dog more. So I was like, I feel, yeah, no it's thanks. not like the most social thing, is it? Cause presumably you just spend no. half of your time just not hearing anything other than your heartbeat or whatever. Yeah. I, I originally like wanted, to, I agreed to it because I was like, Ooh, I can like, my mom's like, you have to do a sport. And I was like, okay, I'll swim because you don't sweat. <laughs> like you're in the water. <laughs> right. That was my reasoning behind it. And then it evolved into something I did until I was 18 years old. Really? Wow. What was your stroke? I was a freestyle and backstroker, but mostly freestyle. 200 meter freestyle was my, that was my race. Yeah. Just, is that like the sprint version or is there a hundred meter freestyle? Is there 200 meters is shortest? There's a hundred meter too. Right. Yeah. I, I did a hundred meter as well, but 200 was like a, a good sweet spot. 
It's like just going gang. You must have been aerobically sound. Do you still swim? No, I should though. I Even really, just like, casually, I should, I should you can still it. just like pop down to the swimming pool, look like a nobody, and then just go and <laughs> blow everybody out of the water with a couple of quick laps or something. Yeah. I bet you could, couldn't you? I probably could. I probably could. Like whenever we go to like a pool or the ocean, I'm like, I got this. <laughs> <laughs> just throw throw something, fire something off a trebuchet. I'll go swim and get it back. Yeah, I'll go minutes. get it. <laughs> Have you got any swimming tips? What do people do wrong about swimming? <sighs> Keep kicking. That was something mm. I like, I was too focused on upper body. Like you have to use both. You have to use your upper body and your legs independently and are uh, together. Sorry. Mm. But, um, I think I would sometimes like forget I had legs and I would just be like dragging myself. <laughs> My coach is like, what are you doing? <laughs> so use, use all your body to swim. <laughs> have you ever seen that? Is it, they call it total immersion swimming. That other way of doing it, where people kind of push their arms down and forwards into the water or something. Do you oh, know what I'm talking about? We did we did stuff like that for like strength training, right? Like, but I never like I've I've never seen like the competitions of people like I never I, liked doing it. Like we would have to we would have to sit on a kickboard, so like the the buoyancy is like under the water, and you would have like weights on your hands, and you'd have to skull through the water like the, mm-hmm. the length of the pool, and that. it was awful. Yeah, but there's you get guy, strong. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say there's a guy who teaches swimming to my four year old, and he's like very thin legs, but the top of his body's like he's got the biggest chest you ever saw, and I'm like I'm pretty sure he's a butterfly guy because I think that's what you have to be, don't you? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was not my not my stroke. I couldn't I couldn't do that. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm very much my my swimming activities are mostly sitting in a children's pool, being jumped on by my children, or and this is oversharing, but while one of them casually just twiddles my nipples under the water, <laughs> that happens a lot. That is oversharing. Um, hey, Elizabeth, thanks for having a needle exchange with me. Thank you so much for having me. It was absolutely wonderful. <laughs> it's the right answer. Thanks for joining me on another needle exchange. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to email hello at needle.exchange. That's N-W-E-D-L dot exchange with any thoughts, comments, or feedback. And if you want to keep up with all the news, sign up to the needle exchange mailing list at bit.ly bit.ly forward slash needle exchange. See you next time.